0: Hello, big-time dickettes. <laughs> we don't have it. <laughs> it's Joanna and here. We're not doing a new episode this week because, very exciting news, we are changing the day that we are released.
1: Yeah, we are releasing now every Tuesday, and the reasoning for this is we figured that the news is so depressing, you probably want to start your week with it and not end your week with it. I mean, at least I want to start my week
0: with it and not end my week with it. So today, in light of the recent news about DACA, we're going to be rerunning an episode from February about ICE raids and Trump's immigration crackdown. It's awful that this is rerunnable. It's, like, disgusting. But in this episode, we spoke with New York Immigration Coalition's Thanu Yakupitiyage about what the Muslim ban meant for undocumented immigrants in the U.S., what the new ICE protocols meant, and about knowing your rights.
1: And next week, we're going to talk about the rescinding of DACA and what that means for the nearly one million undocumented immigrants in this country and their families. So enjoy this episode, and we'll see you next Tuesday.
0: Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Features Editor at Jezebel. And
1: I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel.
0: This past week, Donald Trump made up a fake terrorist attack in Sweden to justify his Muslim ban.
2: You look at what's happening in Germany. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden.
1: Sweden. I would like to point out that this is actually kind of incredible. It's incredible that there's such little evidence to support Trump's idea that Muslims are a threat to our daily lives that his administration repeatedly has to make up fake attacks to justify their policies.
0: And also in Sweden, like, who's going to believe that? Sweden is populated 100% by elves.
1: (laughs) So later on in the episode, we'll be talking to Thana Yakupitiyage of the New York Immigration Coalition about the ICE raids happening across the country.
3: This is really making people hold their families closer. People are afraid to go to work. People are afraid to send their children to school.
1: But first, our weekend weenies. Our first weenie is actually a group of weenies. They are the restaurant owners who fired immigrants for protesting uh, last Thursday. So on February 16th, thousands of immigrants across the country went on strike to protest Donald Trump's anti-immigrant policies, including the Muslim ban, the border wall, and the deportations of undocumented immigrants. So the protest was called A Day Without Immigrants. And so on that day, a lot of businesses closed and some even gave permission to their employees to leave um, in support of the strike. But some really dickish restaurant owners decided to fire their employees for missing a day of work. So in Colorado, this is how one business owner, Jim... Sarowski of JVS Masonry justified firing 31 of his workers, um, even though they told him their plans in advance. So his logic was this. If you're going to stand up for what you believe in, you're going to have to pay the price. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, that's the spirit of America, right? The land. It's the land it- where you have to buy morals and basic human rights. Yeah,
0: that's like a very good misleading quote because it sounds like he's going to say something that's inspiring and then he doesn't.
1: <laughs>
0: um, our next weenie is another group of weenies. We're getting very comfortable dealing in groups of weenies. There are just so many. I know there are too many. We have to put them in groups. So this weenie it are all the Republicans who are skipping their town halls during the congressional recess. So this week, members of Congress returned to their districts because of the congressional recess. However, only 19 Republican members of Congress are holding town hall meetings during this time because, I would imagine, they're scared of what their constituents are going to tell them. Notably, there are no town halls happening in Utah where Representative Jason Chaffetz was recently berated by shouting constituents in a very fun YouTube video. Oh,
2: well, let me address it. She asked
3: about a specific person. You're going to like the bill that I introduced, though, to
1: the There is a very satisfying one of Mitch McConnell getting yelled at by a constituent as well. The last I
3: heard, these coal jobs are not coming back, and now these people don't have the insurance they need because they're poor. And they work those coal mines, and they're sick, The veterans are sick. The veterans are broken down. They're not getting what they need. If you can answer
0: any of that, I'll sit down and shut up like Elizabeth Warren. I love that. I love videos of angry constituents.
1: All right. So our next weenie is one a guy you may have never heard of unless you're from Utah. His name is James Green. He's a former vice chair of the Wasatch County Republican Party. So he's a pretty small weenie. But the reason why I have included him in this larger group is because I think that he symbolizes some of the misogyny we see on a broader level in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a letter to the editor in the Park Record and the Wasatch Wave arguing against equal pay for men and women.
0: By the way, just to interrupt, I love when people write letters to the editor because they're like, not only are my views important enough to say out loud, they're important enough that I need to ask an editor to print it on lots of pieces of paper for me. And I want my whole town to know that this is exactly what I think.
1: Right. And that, and this is clearly some unrepresented viewpoint. Yeah, that this needs is to original. People need to know. Yeah. This is an they opinion need people to need to know. Need to know. <laughs> um, his argument was basically that women are, quote, mothers and men are breadwinners. So men should get paid more and women should just stay at home. And that if we, like, if women start working, which, uh, newsflash, women have been working for a while out of the home. <laughs> this is men. Um, no <laughs> that, that that will drive up competition for jobs, which is correct. Yes. <laughs> and will then drive down wages for men. And that that hurts everybody in society because men are the breadwinners and women should be staying at home and taking care of the kids.
0: I think the funniest part of this overall very funny and very stupid letter to the editor was that he did weird capitalization like he would capitalize mothers I noticed like that. as if they're a like a social group mothers
1: well and in his apology so so this generated a lot of outrage and in his apology he referred to women with a capital W as well as a sign of I'm not even sure what I some don't weird think it's a sign of respect form of respect <laughs> an attempt I'm not sure anyway not his, sure. his letter caused a lot of outrage and was condemned he eventually resigned from his position and even the local Republican Party also called him out. And State Representative Tim Quinn completely disavowed the comments. So I know. I mean, this is a situation
0: where Republicans are calling him out being like, please don't be so obvious.
1: Right. Like, keep
0: (laughs) this shit cool. So now it's time for Cage Match, where we debate who is the biggest weenie of the week.
1: So I think that the biggest weenie or set of weenies are the Republicans skipping the town halls. I agree with you. (laughs) So— I figured you would, which is we are now in an odd cage match situation. I know. We've never it's, been it's like here fighter, before. It's like the fighter just faces a big mirror or something. <laughs> and then go, I, I
0: mean, my, my rationale for why the Republicans skipping town halls are the worst is because James Green seems like a petty little idiot. He wrote something stupid, and now I bet he feels very embarrassed about it and will probably learn some sort of lesson. The restaurant owners who fired immigrants for protesting, also, like, flagrant, bad, poor judgment, lack of humanity, blah, blah, blah. But they also are business owners, and I'm sure they—I understand the desire to not want somebody to leave work. I don't agree with it at all, but I understand where they're coming from. Republicans skipping town hall, that's literally their only job. Is is to go
1: to a town hall. That is their job. That's the job. They're not doing their job when they're skipping these meetings. They are elected officials. They have a responsibility to the people who elected them. That's
0: literally their job description is to represent the people that elected them. So
1: it's, yeah.
0: Honestly, how hard is it to just sit in a theater, listen to people? I don't know. Maybe have your mind changed. Own up for the things you've been voting for. Be an adult person.
1: The next campaign slogan for Democrat is a real adult human. A real adult human. I show up to shit.
0: (laughs) So the winner of cage match are all the Republicans who are skipping their town halls. And now I just want to plug a Jezebel project. It's one that one of our staff writers, Ellie Sheckett, is doing for the slot, where she's collecting stories from these town halls across the country. So if you go to your local town hall, you should take pictures take videos, take notes, ask questions, and then send a description of your experience to Ellie. You can reach her at ellie at jezebel.com, or you can email with the subject town hall or whatever you want to tips at jezebel.com.
1: for our Dick of the Week. This is the second week where our dick is actually a big group of dicks. (laughs) It's an an organization.
0: You would think that if we kept doing big groups of dicks, we would run out of dicks, but I guarantee you that will never happen. The world will never have a shortage of dick. (laughs) It's the Department of Homeland Security. So on Tuesday, the Department of Homeland Security, at the direction of the Trump administration, released a set of new rules that will hugely crack down on immigrants without documentation. These rules are bananas and pretty alarming. But most, among the most alarming a- elements of the rules is the expanding definition of, quote, criminal aliens. So the rules write that these immigrants, quote, routinely victimize and pose a threat to Americans. And they say this even despite research that shows lower levels of crime among immigrants than among people born in the U.S. So now a criminal alien, that is defined to be even someone who's charged with a nonviolent crime, and it used to be only someone who was charged with a violent crime. The new policies will, according to the New York Times, publicize crimes by undocumented immigrants, strip such immigrants of privacy protections, enlist local police officers as enforcers erect new detention facilities, discourage asylum seekers, and ultimately speed up deportations. Among other things, the new rules could also direct that parents and guardians who help their children immigrate to the U.S. illegally could be prosecuted and even deported. For now, people who are here under DACA who are brought to the United States as young children will not be targeted, according to the DHS, unless they commit crimes. But how do you even believe anything? I, mean, I know that's not news, but like—
1: the thing is that you know this is we're already seeing this happen, so it's really hard to to believe officials when they say that oh well this small group of people will not be targeted because they are already being targeted. Um, so it's <laughs> yeah, not very sure. reassuring. Like just a week and a half ago, a 23 year old named Daniel Ramirez Medina, uh, who is an un- he was an undocumented immigrant from Mexico, but he's legally protected by DACA. He was arrested in Seattle, and then last week. The El Paso Times reported that federal agents arrested a transgender woman who was getting a protective order against domestic violence, and she believes that it was her abuser who called agents on her. So basically, we have these new guidelines that are expanding the current set of rules and policies, but we have a lot of—there are a lot of things that are still unclear about the current set, and there's not a lot of confidence that People who are currently legally protected are going to remain legally protected going forward. Just
0: about that domestic violence situation, which is horrific, I have to say I'm not surprised since the entire country is now on the side of an alleged abuser. Like, we're choosing to believe those people as the people who are going to enforce the laws that we care about.
1: That's a really good and really horrible point.
0: Sorry, America.
1: (laughs) So
0: the memos also instruct agency chiefs to begin hiring 10,000 additional ICE agents and 5,000 more for the Border Patrol, which had also been included in Trump's executive actions. And training these people take a while, and something tells me they will not be trained as thoroughly as others would because they are thousands and thousands of people. But don't worry. Say DHS employees. These new rules are not going to trigger mass deportations because they don't have enough staff to do it. Um, On a conference call, a DHS official said, quote, we do not have the personnel, time, or resources to go into communities and round up people and do all kinds of mass-throwing folks on buses. That's entirely a figment of folks' imagination. This is not intended to produce mass roundups, mass deportations.
1: Why do I not believe a word of that?
0: (laughs) I believe none of it.
1: So Trump is presenting some of the harshest anti-immigrant policies that we've seen in our lifetimes, definitely in my lifetime. But when you talk to people from older generations, you realize that America has a very long history of being hostile towards immigrants who are really just seen as the other, even though immigrants are the ones who literally built the infrastructure of this country. I mean, going back all the way, like Indian people, Irish, Jewish people, black people, um... And even Native Americans, who were not even immigrants, they inhabited this land before white settlers stole it from them. Um, But Native Americans weren't even allowed to be U.S. citizens until 1924, and it wasn't until 1957 that all 50 states gave Native Americans the right to vote. And then there was the Naturalization Act of 1906, which allowed only, quote, free white persons and, quote, persons of African nativity or persons of African descent to become American citizens. So that basically was all other people of color, um, Latinos, Asians, Indian Americans, or Indians rather, were barred from U.S. citizenship. So this has gone on all through U.S. history, but I want to highlight one particularly dark chapter in American history, I think, which is often overlooked, but it's very relevant in light of all the policies that we're seeing right now against Muslims and undocumented people, including the rhetoric Um, And that is the era of internment camps. So during World War II, Americans began to fear that Japanese Americans would turn on them. So in 1942, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. And this authorized the incarceration of over 100,000 Japanese Americans, most of whom were living in the Pacific Coast, and were American citizens. Like, over 60% of these people who were rounded up were American citizens. One guy... Fred Korematsu, challenged the constitutionality of this order, and his case went to the Supreme Court, but he lost the case. So the Supreme Court actually ruled in defense of the government, which is easily the most embarrassing and infuriating decision that the Supreme Court has ever made, but it stands. So Richard Reeves, who is a lecturer of the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism at USC— recently wrote a book called Infamy, The Shocking Story of the Japanese-American Internment in World War II. And he warned last April in an interview with Democracy Now!, he warned that he believes that internment camps could happen again. To
2: Muslims, to uh, border crosses, and I wanted to do my bit uh, to try to make that not happen. But I do think if uh, a few incidents, uh, the Supreme Court never ruled that the Uh, the laws the White House and the military used to incarcerate uh, these people, that's still on the books. Uh, As Justice Jackson, Robert Jackson said, uh, it's a a loaded gun on the Constitution. So that I had, uh, I'm I'm amazed at how few people, once you get east of the Sierras and the Cascades, really know or believe this happened.
1: So another thing that Reeves points out, is that these militarized, basically, concentration camps um, that targeted Japanese people were enforced by an executive order that never once mentioned the Japanese, and that the president at the time, Roosevelt, had the support of the Justice Department and numerous other wings of the government.
2: Japanese Americans or Japanese are never mentioned in Executive Order uh, 1066, which uh, Roosevelt signed... Uh, partly under the tutelage of Roger Baldwin of the American Civil Liberties Union, who was saying these were the people you would think would rise up. The ACLU. Uh, yes. But they, uh, Baldwin was a great friend and supporter of uh, of Roosevelt, and he forbade his people to, uh, to, to talk about race in, in this sentence. The, the order doesn't say race, but it was only the Japanese-Americans who were, who were rounded up.
1: That sounds pretty similar to the setup that we have today with Trump's flurry of executive orders, his pal Jeff Sessions. Former Dick. Former Dick. Current Dick. Also still Dick. Still a Dick. Current, former featured Dick, yeah. uh, was running the Department of Justice, and Trump is scapegoating Muslims and undocumented immigrants for all the problems that white America has. Things they have. So we
0: all know that the United States has had a number of racist immigration laws, some of them that Prachi talked about. There was also in 1917 the Johnson-Reed Act, which is an immigration law that looks very similar to the Muslim ban that prevented anyone from entering the U.S. who was born in a geographic area called the Asiatic Bard Zone. And then there was also the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. But other than that, immigration was generally unregulated in the country aside from something called hemispheric quotas. And that basically said we could take a certain number of people from Europe. We could take a certain number of people from this part of Europe. We could take a certain number of people from Italy. I just named a bunch of different places in Europe, but they all had different (laughs) quotas.
1: Can I tell you what the quota was for people from India? Tell Only 100 people from India could come into the U.S. (laughs) per year.
0: Of these quotas, I listened to this NPR interview with Steven Kleinberg, who's a Rice University sociologist. The interview happened in, like, 2006. Um, And he said before the passage of this law that I'm about to talk about in 1965, immigration laws were just explicitly racist. Um, his quote is it declared that Northern Europeans are a superior subspecies of the white race. The Nordics were superior to the Alpines, who in turn were superior to the Mediterraneans, and all of them were superior to the Jews and the Asians.
1: So this this cool. podcast is run by two very inferior <laughs>
0: women. The Jews and the Indians. The Jews and the
1: Indians.
0: <laughs> we would not have been welcome. <laughs> okay, so In 1965, civil rights era, everyone's—not everyone—some people are realizing how unfair this country has been to anyone who's not white, and also in this very specific categorization of what white even meant back then. So people like Greeks and Poles and other excluded nationalities started complaining to the government, saying that these quotas were racist, and the Democrats took up their case. So that's what led to the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, also called the Hart-Seller Immigration Act. And this was the first attempt at passing immigration reform. In June 1963, John F. Kennedy gave a speech to the American Committee on Italian Migration where he spoke about this issue.
2: There are still a good many brothers and sisters of American citizens who are unable to get here, who may have preferences as members of families, but because of the maldistribution of quotas in the European area, we have this situation which has become uh, nearly intolerable.
0: So he's basically speaking in a very similar way that maybe someone would speak about today, but about Italians. So this law was supposed to make immigration less discriminatory at the time of the law's passage Vice President Hubert Humphrey, this was after Kennedy was assassinated, said, we must in 1965 remove all elements in our immigration law, which suggests there are second class people. So the law specifically eliminated the use of national origin quotas under which the vast majority of immigrant visas were dedicated to people coming from Europe. So there were plenty of opponents to the bill in Congress. They said that the U.S. was primarily a European country and that The Immigration Act would change that, which, of course, it would, and that the U.S. would soon be populated by people from impoverished countries. A North Carolina senator named Sam Irvin said, The people of Ethiopia have the same right to come to the United States under this bill as the people from England, the people of France, the people of Germany, and the people of Holland. With all due respect to Ethiopia, he said, I don't know of any contributions that Ethiopia has made to the making of America. Wow. Not only is that so racist, it's also insane and incorrect. So people didn't fight that. Not even the supporters of the bill fought that. Because their point wasn't to let more Ethiopians into America— they said, like the bill supporters said that it wouldn't even change how our immigration system looked. The Secretary of State at the time, Dean Ruskin, said that he didn't see any signs of, quote, a world situation where everybody is just straining to move to the U.S.
1: So so it's basically because of a miscalculation on his part. It wasn't like a anti-racism. It wasn't like he it was like to not be racist. It was just like, oh, well, no one really wants to come here, so. I
0: think it was—I think the bill came from, like, civil rights-era sentiment. Like, let's let a few more Greek people in. Let's not have these quotas. Let's allow people to come here equally. But also probably everything will look the same. So it was like—I think it was a combination of both of those feelings.
1: I, I feel so— uh both lucky and unlucky to have been allowed into this <laughs> yeah. my, my my parents were allowed in this country. Yeah. Like
0: I feel yeah I feel lucky <laughs> that my ancestors were allowed into this country so that they survived the Holocaust. But also yeah, like that, we could have also been happy in Sweden. Like we could have been happy well
1: somewhere. now that now that there was You're right it's
0: it's like it's too riddled dang- with terrorism. It's now
1: way too dangerous <laughs> yeah. in Sweden, according to Donald Trump. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> So to alleviate fears that a bunch of non-white people would immigrate to the U.S. under this new act, they actually changed the language of the bill. So the bill now gave visa preference to people who wanted to join their families in the country. So they thought that changing the language would mean that this would attract a bunch of Europeans, so a bunch of, like, British people who wanted to come join their British family here and become a doctor, or Germans who wanted to come become a doctor. Instead, that led to chain migration, which is when immigrants from a particular town follows follow others from that town to a particular city or location or neighborhood. And ultimately, this led to an influx of even more Asian, Latino, and African immigrants because those were the people who wanted to move the most.
1: So basically, the legislate, white legislators made a huge miscalculation and opened the floodgates to tons of people of color, and then were like, oops. <laughs>
0: Yes, and they were at once like, we're not racist, and also like, we are racist. (laughs) And then they led to an influx of non-white immigrants. Following the passage of the law, immigration started to look very different, obviously, even though it wasn't supposed to. Lyndon B. Johnson was the president who ultimately would sign the bill into law. And when he was passing it, he said that it wasn't, quote, a revolutionary bill, and that it would not, quote, reshape the structure of our daily lives. Of course, that is not true at all. America completely changed.
1: I think it's interesting who he's talking about when he says our daily lives. He's talking about white America. Because a bill that allows people, more people of color into your country is going to dramatically change the lives of people of color within this country and all the people coming in. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) And also the people who are escaping their, like, impoverished countries to come— Seek economic stability. It means that communities are going to
1: grow and entire economies are going to develop and change. Like, it's going to actually be very revolutionary for millions of people already living here. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) the moral
0: of the story, everyone in Congress back then was a moron. Except for the people who actually did good civil rights stuff.
1: (laughs) So, okay, so to recap, basically, who and how many people get to come into this country has always been a reflection of white America's Fears and insecurities. And right now, Trump has turned Muslims and undocumented brown people into white America's biggest fear. Honestly, this is,
0: <laughs> I think you said that same sentence in the podcast last week. Did I really? I mean, you didn't, but it's like people who people allow in the bathrooms are who white people are scared of right now. It's,
1: it's a common thread in American history. What can I say? It, sh- it shapes That's the thesis so of much the of podcast, our current policy,
0: white, white fears.
1: So now we're going to talk to Thanu yage Senior Manager of Communications at the New York Immigration Coalition, about Trump's immigration orders and what we're seeing right now with the ICE raids. Thanu, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being
0: here. So, first, can you lay out for us how these new rules? change just the day-to-day lives of immigrants in the U.S.? You know, I'm an immigrant myself. I'm, I'm not
3: impacted by these particular enforcement executive orders, but I know from communities who are undocumented that this is really making people hold their families closer. People are afraid to go to work. People are afraid to send their children to school. And they really want to know what it is that they can do in a time of a complete crisis when they're being told that they themselves and their families are not wanted here.
1: So who exactly are the communities, the immigrant communities, who are most affected and scared right now?
3: In terms of immigrant communities who are impacted by these executive orders, it's really immigrant communities across the board. Immigration is not just a Latino issue. And so certainly this impacts Latino immigrants. This also impacts Caribbean immigrants, Asian immigrants, Middle Eastern immigrants. Um, it's really across the board. If you are in the United States and you're undocumented, you are at risk, particularly around the enforcement priorities that um President Trump has set out. And if you are from one of the seven countries that were on the ban list, you know, there is a possibility that it could go back into effect. So this still impacts refugees. It still impacts people um, from Muslim majority countries. And what I find really, Fascinating about this particular juncture in terms of the politics of immigration is that what we're seeing is that both immigrants without status and those with status are being impacted. And I think that it is actually an interesting moment for people, regardless
0: of immigration status, to really come together in solidarity. A DHS official has said that children who are here under DACA won't be affected. But do you have any more insight or opinions on what that really means for them? Yeah, so President Trump,
3: when he talks about DACA, he often flip-flops. So at a press conference last week, he said, quote-unquote, I have a lot of heart. We'll see what we'll do with them. Even though during his campaign, he said that he would eliminate DACA. And so while DACA is safe for now, anything is possible in this administration. And there is a possibility that they'll figure out a way to phase out of the program. So yes, DACA is safe for now. But I think that we can bank on it. And I think that individuals who do have DACA really are recognizing that this is beyond them, right? So if one is a DACA recipient and one has family or parents who are undocumented, those individuals are now at risk of deportation. And so what does this mean for the broader immigrant rights movement when one group of people are being protected, and it's a significant group of people. It's uh, over 750,000 immigrants who have DACA across the country, but millions more are being put at risk of deportation.
1: So under Trump, we've seen deportations have already begun and ICE is starting to conduct raids. When that happens, what rights do undocumented immigrants have, say, when an ICE agent shows up at their door?
3: Yeah, so if an ICE agent shows up at someone's door Um, These are some really critical know your rights uh, pieces. You have the right not to open the door. You have the right to refuse entry to Immigration Customs Enforcement. You have the right to ask for a lawyer. You have the right to remain silent. And you should not under any circumstance sign something without a lawyer present. So basically, under President Obama, technically they um, the priorities for enforcement were such where they were only going after quote unquote violent criminals, and I think that's also a really complicated narrative. But um, and during the President Obama's time, we were able to pr- push for prosecutorial discretion, and what that means is that on a case by case basis. You could work with a lawyer to really, um, and with Immigration Customs Enforcement, to really show that some an individual wasn't a priority for deportation. So, for example, there was a recent um, detainment and deportation in Arizona. This individual in Arizona was using a false secu- social security number, but she had never been convicted of a crime. Um, And under President Obama, she was not a priority for deportation. She has U.S. citizen children. And under the the Trump administration, she is now a priority for deportation, and she was recently deported. So these are the kinds of ways in which, um, you know, immigrants are going to be targeted. Because when you think about it, of course someone who needs to provide for their children will use a false social security number in order to, you know,
0: be able to work. So- A record number of people were deported from the U.S. during Obama's administration. But clearly Trump has his eyes on deporting many more people. Can you talk about what the different administrations look like, I think, in a little more detail? We completely pushed back on President Obama in terms of um, his deportation
3: record. And we do not ever forget that he was considered the deporter-in-chief. And what President Obama was trying to do was that he was trying to Uh, create some sort of a compromise with um, Republicans and with Congress in order to push forward immigration reform, which failed. Um, And in the process, he deported 2.5 million immigrants. And, you know, there certainly were raids during President Obama's time. There certainly was targeted enforcement. This is not at all to suggest that um, President Trump is doing anything vastly different. However, I think that the ways in which we cannot draw parallels between President Obama and President Trump is really the the insidious anti-immigrant atmosphere that's really in the air in all of the rhetoric that's coming out of this administration, um, any American value of inclusivity, um, of justice, of welcoming people has really been thrown out the door. And that's something that I think must should be the most concerning for all American people. And President Trump, when he talks about immigrants, what he's doing is really trying to create an other for his base. And he likes to blame immigrants for all of the problems that America faces without any actual facts besides his alternative facts.
1: So this also sounds like a logistical nightmare based on the current chaos that we're seeing around Trump's executive orders. Uh, that, like DHS has promised to that things are going to be more streamlined. The new executive order that's being announced soon is also promising that things will be more streamlined. But With the hiring of tens of thousands of new agents and this rapid pace, that doesn't seem, from my perspective, that doesn't, I don't see how that that's possible. Can you share some insight into how you think the logistics of this are going to play out and what you've seen so far?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So there's certain things within the executive order and the memos that actually require congressional approval, including the border wall. So the estimation for how much this border wall is going to cost is $22.5 billion, How is it possible that taxpayers are going to foot the bill for that? It does not matter if President Trump continues to say that, quote unquote, Mexico will pay for the wall. That is not happening. Additionally, they are going to um, expand the number of immigration customs enforcement agents and Border Patrol agents, uh, I think the number is over 10,000. That's also something that requires congressional approval and is going to take millions and millions of dollars to put into place. That's not something that can take place overnight. It's going to take years to really also train officers like that. And one of the biggest worries also is that if they're really trying to ram forward like 10,000 new positions, who is going to do that training? That training takes years. And so you're putting individuals who do not have any training and who could potentially be irresponsible with people's lives into these positions.
0: And I think that's also something of great concern. So finally, what resources do concerned immigrants have right now? What is your organization doing? Mm -hmm. What choices do they have?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We're in the process of putting together new Know Your Rights materials. If you go to www.nyic.org, we have a community toolkit, which is translated into uh, English and Spanish for now, and will be translated into other languages. Uh, you can also get on our text service list. So, if you if you are English speaking, if you text N Y I C to eight six four two three seven, you can get updates about our campaigns. If you'd like to be on a Spanish list, you can text uh, V O C E S that's V O C E S to eight six four two three seven. If someone is at risk of deportation, what we encourage people to do is to really gather paperwork that demonstrates that they've been in the United States for a long time. I think that's super useful to keep that in a safe place, to make sure that there are several point people who know where that documentation is in in case of any sort of emergency situation, and um, to get in touch with legal counsel as soon as
0: possible. Okay, well, thank you so much for being here. This was very enlightening and helpful.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: for the best segment of the show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we tell you exactly what we're doing minute to minute to handle how shitty our country is and continues to be. Prachi, how are you handling the dicks?
1: Well, last week, I deleted all of my dating apps. Wow. I was on I was on three. I deleted... Okay, keep it a while ago. <laughs> but um, I deleted them all because I realized... I'm so emotionally drained from the election, from covering Trump, from the inauguration, from just everything that's happened with Donald Trump. And I have very low tolerance for men (laughs) right (laughs) now, I think. Um, And I just, I realized I wasn't really able to invest the time or energy I need to to be able to get to know somebody new. And I've sort of been surrounding myself with just you know, a lot of my female friends, and that feels really good. So I realized that it was kind of unfair to be dating if I'm not really interested in dating. So you're handling the dicks by
0: refusing
1: to handle a dick. Well said. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, basically.
0: Yours are always such good, like, mindful decisions about how you're going to live your life, and mine is just becoming obsessed with a stupid thing that I'm obsessed with this week. This week, I'm obsessed with My Fitbit yesterday. You have a Fitbit? (laughs) Wow. I just showed it. Um, But I keep it under my clothes because Fitbits are for nerds. But yesterday I worked from home and that made me feel kind of crappy. I just had too much work and I couldn't leave. And then at the end of the day, I was like, oh, shit, I've only taken 500 steps. That's not true. I had taken like 1,000 steps because I hadn't left my apartment all day. So... (laughs) So I was running back and forth in my apartment and, like, <laughs> jogging in place and doing punches and stuff like I'm a <laughs> freaking maniac. And my cat, like, hid in his very scared hiding place because I was behaving like a maniac. Anyway, I got up to 8,000 steps.
1: Joanna, next, by doing <laughs> <laughs> next week, I'm half expecting you to come here and be like, well… My, feel- my ceiling fell through, and <laughs> I bought a punching bag, and it's now in my bedroom <laughs> next to my nightstand, and I'm, I punch it before I go to bed every night.
0: That feels—that <laughs> does sound like me. <laughs> I would. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks. And please rate and review us on iTunes so other people can find the podcast. It's honestly very important. And I don't think you believe me, but it is. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, And this episode was mixed by Brad Fisher.
1: Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then.